The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in 1 John. For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them with me. We're going to be in 1 John eventually in chapter 3. But go ahead and grab them, scroll there, turn there, however you get there this morning. Um, I have loved teaching 1 John. I have loved our journey that we've been on, uh, but let me be honest with you. As we began 1 John, I knew that there would come uh, weeks where we would get to certain passages that were going to make us pause a little bit. We were going to get to certain texts that were going to make us ask questions, certain texts that were going to make us kind of dig a little bit. Church, we're at one of those texts this morning. We are at one of those texts. And I want to just put all of my cards on the table just for, just for a moment. Um, this was a week in preparation for this sermon. It felt more like the sermon was preparing me. And this is a week I have wrestled. Honestly, and this has been a wonderful week of wrestling through this text. I cannot wait to, to walk through this. It's one of those weeks that I am, I am grateful that God continues to speak through his word. I really am. Um, as I said, our, our text is going to be 1 John 3. But before we get to 1 John 3, what I want to do is to go a page or a flick earlier uh, to 1 John 1. We're going to lay some groundwork together, and and what I want to do is I want to just put up these two texts that we're going to look at, uh, and I just want to read them out loud, and then I want to talk about the way that we are going to bring this together, and I think it's going to be for our good this morning. So uh, 1 John 1, let's start in verses 8 and uh, through 10. So 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay, so on this, this hand, right, on this hand, we see that if you say you have not sinned, you deceive yourself, you lie to yourself. More than that, when you, when you say you have not sinned, you make God himself a liar. So that is on this hand. So, so John, in that text, is lovingly reminding this church, church, strive not to sin. But when you do, when you do, not if, when you do, you have a God who is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from unrighteousness, right? That's what we have on this hand. Now, Let's uh, move back a, couple, a page, uh, back to our text this morning, and I'm just going to read it quickly. We're going to drop back into it and, and everything, but I want to read it quickly, uh, in, starting in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. So with that being said on this hand, let's switch over here. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Amen. But then verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Uh, let's look at verse 8. We'll come back to, to the whole thing here in a moment. But verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Woo. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, no one born of God makes the practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay? This hand, right? We, we got that one. Now let's go over here to this hand. No one who abides in God keeps, continues to sin. No one who abides in God uh, or who keeps on makes a practice of sinning, no one knows him or, or has ever known him. Uh, <laughs> The non-PC way to say this, as John did, is everyone who makes a practice of sinning is a child of the devil. Right? So, child of the devil, over here. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So, what do we do with that? We have, on this hand, you're a sinner. If you deny that, you're a liar. And you make God a liar. On this hand, you're a child of the devil if you sin. All right, child of the devil. So we have liar, child of the devil, right? Which one are you? No, I'm not going to ask that. Um, on first reading this, it sounds like horrible news. If we're just honest, it sounds kind of terrible, but it's not. Um, I want us to, as we begin in this text, to bring these two hands together, to bring these two hands together. And as we do that, there are two things that I want us to see. And this is kind of a, um, a clarification, if you will. The first one is this, is that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, right, true. And no Scripture will contradict another Scripture. Okay? No Scripture will contradict another Scripture. In the times that we are wrestling with texts, what they mean, and there's the, it looks like it contradicts. Let me assure you, the contradiction is not in the text. It might be with our interpretation of the text, but it's not in the text. Uh, we believe that, that God has spoken through his word, that he hasn't made a mistake. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard it said like this, but we believe that our God is actually a good communicator. And he meant for us to understand. So scripture will not contradict scripture. So when we get to these passages, I'm just going to give you three things. These aren't rocket science, and this is really building our foundation. Uh, when we get to difficult passages like this, first, we approach it prayerfully. Since God speaks, and since he is, he just so happens to be a great communicator, then when we get to something and we're struggling to understand, we ask him. God, would you open my eyes to what you have to say? What does this mean? Will you help me see it? God, through his spirit, will open our eyes because, like I said, he wrote this in order to be understood. So when we approach texts like this, we approach it prayerfully. Second, we approach it carefully. We avoid our tendency to rush in guns a-blazing to tell everyone what this text means. Because what often happens is we get to hard texts, and instead of dealing with them, we go, let's just talk about what this one means. And we avoid it. But instead, we, we, we need to approach this prayerfully and carefully. Lastly, 
we approach it in community. You are not in a vacuum. Praise God for that. You are not in a vacuum. You have people all around you who God has placed around you that we are on this journey together to iron, sharpen iron kind of thing, right? Um, let me put it like this. No matter what you're wrestling with in, the, in your Bible, you are around people that have wrestled with that text before. Benefit from their struggle. Uh, don't try to just wrestle with this in, the, in the, the quiet of your own office, but instead, when you're struggling, we, we approach it prayerfully, carefully, and in community because we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and inspired and true, and that Scripture will not contradict Scripture. Amen? All right, that's foundation number one. The second thing is that context matters. Context matters. Um, the context of this letter, remember, church, 1 John was written by John to a church in order to encourage them. He was writing to a group of Christians, followers of Jesus, who had just gone through an absolutely difficult circumstance where a portion of their church just got up, rose up, left, and started a cult. Their friends left, starting a cult. And so John is writing to this church in the middle of that just difficult moment, and he's providing them peace. He's providing them encouragement. He's comforting them. He is showing them in that in the midst of all of the weirdness, you can have assurance that you are mine. He's writing this letter to bring assurance to this church. So that's enough groundwork. Now let's attempt to bring this, these hands together. Uh, in light of all of that, let's consider 1 John 1.8 for a moment. Uh, John says, church, I know that you struggle. Let no one pretend that you're perfect. Don't play that game. Don't pretend like you don't need grace. Don't pretend like you're sinless. Stop it. If you pretend that you have no sin, you are lying to yourself. Um, let no one pretend that they don't need grace. Because God has said, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so John 1.8 says, if you claim that you're sinless, you're a liar because God told you you weren't sinless, right? God told you you weren't sinless. And so we, in the midst of that, listen to this. Verse 9, it says, in the midst of all of your sin, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So John is encouraging this church in the midst of their sin to, if you confess, right, he is faithful, he is just to forgive. Um, there is grace in him. No matter what you have done, by the way, this is for us this morning. No matter what you have done, there is grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is in Ephesians 2. He starts off and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins that you once walked in. You were dead Right, following after the course of this world, the passions of your flesh, uh, carrying out the desires of your body by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right, But then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So 1 John 1, 8 through 10, I want us to think of, of John reminding us of that. 
but God moment. You were dead, but God, but God. That, that, you're, that God, his grace is bigger than your sin. I mean, think of it like this. God's grace makes dead things live. Like that's incredible. It's this but God moment that John points us back to. I don't know if you know this or not, just side note. Um, we are not a perfect church. Some of you are like, I know. But um, we are not a perfect church. And do you know why? Because we are not perfect people. Uh, we've, we've heard it said before that if you're looking for a perfect church and you think you found it, don't go because you'll mess it up, right? Uh, we are not a collection of perfect people. We're a collection of forgiven people. We're a collection of people who are daily, moment by moment, reliant on God's grace. That's us. We're a collection of broken people who have been made whole by Jesus Christ. We are a people who are honest about who we are. Putting down the mask. We're a people who are honest that we are sinners saved by grace and that our only boast, our only confidence is that Jesus Christ did a work on us. And now we're not the same. That's who we are. And, and John reminds us, church, your sin is not an obstacle for God. It's good news. Amen. Amen. At least for some of us, that's good news. It's good news for me. Um, so here, before we shift, you are perfectly, completely forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness, and that's a mark of what it means to be a child of God. Now, let's look at our text today, and now let's, let's actually dig in a little bit more. So 1 John 3, we're going to start again in verse 4. Um, in verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that he being Jesus Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in, in him there is no sin. We could say amen to that one, right? We, we don't even need to unpack that one anymore. That one, he's just basically restating what we, had already, what we have just talked about, that Jesus bore the sins of sinners so that we no longer have to bear them. Right, and so, so for all of us in this room, that is good news. But then, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So wait, what? Right? He continues, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, listen to this, verse 9, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The verbs in this text are really important. Let me just highlight this for a moment. Uh, practices righteousness, makes a practice of sinning, practices sinning, keeps on sinning. You see all these. Notice that the verbs, the action words in this sentence are not past tense. They're not past tense. They're not a one-time event that has already happened. No, these verbs and these actions in this text are repeated, ongoing, and happening currently. Um, so... I think we need to define what the practice of sinning is. I think it's important because whatever it is, it's a characteristic of the devil or a child of the devil, and I don't want that. So let's, um, 
let's define this for, for a moment. The practice of sinning. I'm going to put this on the screen, and uh, these words are important. The practice of sinning is ongoing, repeated, unconfessed, habitual, uncorrected lifestyle sin. So let me define it again. Ongoing, repeated, unconfessed, habitual, uncorrected lifestyle sin. And according to this text, children of the devil have ongoing, repeated, unconfessed, habitual, uncorrected lifestyle sin while the children of God practice righteousness. The children of God are forgiven and cleansed, and the children of God are righteous through Christ. I can feel the awkwardness in this room. I can feel it. In this moment, it's almost like I can hear our minds being flooded with questions. What about blank? What about that? I mean, what about that person? What about that sin? Right? What about that? Our minds just start flooding with questions. Uh, let, me, let me say this as we drill deeper into this, something more important that we kind of get to under the surface. Um, we can read this text in two ways. We can read this text primarily with others in mind, or we can read this text primarily with ourselves in mind. Amen. Now, when we read this text with others in our mind, primarily, when we read our text like that, we, we put ourselves in a weird place we put ourselves in this weird place where we place ourselves kind of in this seat of, uh, lack of a better word, judge, um, where, where we fall into the temptation of stepping into a role that was never meant to be ours, and we, we kind of view this as our badge to be the salvation police or the salvation judge. Let me give you an example. We look at some people and we say, yep, check, child of God, I see it, all over them, they are awesome, Child of God, nailed it. We look at others and we say, that's a child of the devil right there. Like, I see it, they smell like it, it's easy, and we, we, we classify. Then we have others, these are the hard ones, where we say, you know what? I'm not sure about that one. Child of God, maybe, I wish they were. They're kind of great people, but then what? And all of a sudden we, get, we stump ourselves in, in this weird let me put it like this. Um, I have good news, and that is there is a judge. He is perfect and good and holy and right, and that judge is not you. Amen? Amen. Um, that judge is not me, and, and this burden can come off of our shoulders a little bit. And as we read this text, it doesn't have to be our badge for salvation police anymore when we don't read it primarily through the lens of others. Um, now, it's never our places to determine whether or not someone else is saved. Uh, praise God, that's not my job. Praise God, that's not your job. Uh, that's way above my pay grade. That is just not my job. Praise God for that. This passage was given to us to provide assurance, not ammunition. Assurance not ammunition. Um, 
Everything changes when we read this text with ourselves in mind. Everything changes because now rather than providing us ammunition to identify heathens in our life, what it does is it gives us assurance when we look at our own lives. This text, and we are going to spend the rest of our time with this thing, with this one question. This text drives us to ask and to answer one question. And if we ask and answer this question, I think we get at the heart of this text. All of us need to answer this. When I say all of us, I mean all of us. I've I've told you that preparing this sermon was difficult for me. It challenged me. Uh, It wrecked me. And I want to be generous and just share this wreckage with you. So you're welcome. Uh, But here's the question. You ready? Uh, What is your response to your sin? What is your response to your sin? When is the last time you were broken over it? When is the last time you were literally on your knees because of it? Asking God, I need your help because I can't do this. When's the last time you were broken? When's the last time you took your own sin as seriously as you take the sins of others in your life? When is the last time it has broken you, wrecked you? When is the last time you have lost sleep because you were confessing your own sin before your loving father? Do you treat your sins as though they are normal? A normal part of doing your life just something you've come to expect. Do you downplay the seriousness or do you assume that because God is so good, his grace is so big that no matter what I do, he loves me so I'm gonna do my thing and we downplay the seriousness of sin because of how amazing his grace is. His, his grace is amazing, don't get me wrong, but your sin is also far bigger than that. Far bigger than that. What is your response to your sin? I have a weird analogy that is going to require your imaginations a little bit. So I want you to picture your living room. Picture your living room. Um, You, uh, friends, gathering in your living room, maybe uh, your family. If you have kiddos, they're playing on the ground. Maybe uh, many of us are in community groups. So imagine your community group just in a living room together. All right? You got it? Picture it? You're all just there. You're having a great time. And right there in your living room, right to the side of the couch, is a Texas rattlesnake. The thing is huge. Just sitting there. Joining your community group. Right? How many are cool with that? How many would continue on as normal? How many of us would just continue on asking questions in our community group? How many of us would just let our kids play? Like, don't maybe get that close, but yeah, that's good. Of course not. My anxiety goes up thinking about a rattlesnake in my living room. Um, Of course we wouldn't. The reason I paint this horrible, weird scene, we're going to come back to it, but the reason I paint it is because there's a commentator that I read in, uh, this week that says this beautifully. He says, you can, no more, or you can be no more indifferent to sin than you could be indifferent to a rattlesnake in your house. You can be no more indifferent to sin than you could be indifferent 
to a rattlesnake in your house. So church, what is your response to sin? Is it dangerous? Is it deadly? Is it requiring immediate action? Or is it normal? Something you can get to later. Um, something that you may enjoy a little too much to get it out. Um, there's a couple, there, there's really one thing that I want us to see before we, an, we, we answer this question. Um, verse six, just as a clarification, says no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Notice it does not say no one who abides in him has ever sinned. And I wanna revisit this because a child of God is not someone who never sins. Some of you are like, Whew. a child of God is not someone who never sins. However, a child of God is not someone who is content in their sin either. In other words, we are not a people content with relaxing in our living room while a rattlesnake is right there. That's not us. That's not us. No one who abides in him continues in ongoing, repeated, unconfessed, habitual, uncorrected, lifestyle sin. For the same reason that you're not cool with a rattlesnake joining your family movie night. We are not cool with sin just sitting there in our lives. When you become a child of God, God, through his spirit, removes the ignorance of that snake. He, he, it's like he taps you on the shoulder through his, spirits and he, through his spirit and he says, hey, right there beside that couch, you might want to deal with that. You might want to deal with that. He removes our ignorance. There's a difference between a person who keeps on sinning and a person who sins. It's the same difference between one of us taking a walk and happening upon a rattlesnake in comparison to taking that rattlesnake and giving it a new resident in our living room. Does that make sense? We as children of God, as followers of Christ, we may happen upon rattlesnakes from time to time on our walk. That does not mean that we're okay with it living in our house. The reason I bring this up, because, because church, those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, I want you to hear me. Don't buy the lie that any sin that you have committed in your past any sin that you have committed from, in your past removes you from the family of God. God's grace is bigger than that, church. Remember, John is writing to bring assurance to this church, saying, remember, church, if you confess he's faithful and just and able to cleanse, his grace is bigger. But it still leaves us to the quest, with the question of why, what is your response to your sin? One more thing I'll say about this. Um, here's why this question matters. The way we answer this question deeply matters because your response to your sin is an avenue of assurance in your life. Your response to your sin is an avenue of assurance in your life. Here's what I mean by that. Your struggle with sin should be an indication that you are a child of God because children of the devil don't tend to struggle with sin. They do it. Here's an example. There was a guy who was a follower of Jesus and he was asked, did you struggle with pornography? 
His response was honest and incredibly good. He said, before I came to know Christ, I did not struggle at all with pornography. I just watched it. That's it. No struggle there. I only started to struggle once Jesus saved me. The struggle, the confession, the battle with the flesh, for the sake of the faith, As we pursue Christ and we struggle from time to time, that struggle, that battle, as we become more like Christ, proclaims that you are his. You are his child. Children of the devil don't struggle trying to live up to the righteousness of God. They don't struggle trying to imitate Jesus. That's not their battle. That's ours. That's our battle. We struggle. Children... Our text says that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. He, uh, he doesn't struggle with sin. He's just doing it from the beginning of time. He embraces it. And like father, like son, children of the devil follow in his footsteps, embracing it. Now, yes, they might want to be better people, but that's for selfish reasons. It's not to pursue Jesus. And our attempt to pursue Jesus, this is our battle, our fight, slowly and surely we get better at this fight, knowing, living under the hope that one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to kill that snake. It's going to be dead. It's going to be gone. But until that day, don't invite it for movie night, right? Don't invite it to your community group. Don't invite, invite it to play Legos with your children. This needs to be Until that day, let me put it like this, we fight, and our war is not flesh and blood. It's it's a war against things unseen, and this war, as we are in this battle, is a resounding sign that we are his. Are you struggling? Are you fighting? Are you engaged in this battle? Are you fighting to be more like your Savior. One day, the rattlesnake is going to be killed, and until that day, we fight a battle. I want to finish our text, verse 10 in chapter 3. It says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and nor is the one who does not love his brother. So by this, it is evident. We see, we know, we know that we know as we've talked about. Um, Whoever does not practice righteousness and does not love his brother is not a child of God is what this says. It says we can see that we are children of God by the way that we practice righteousness and love each other. Remember we talked about in John 13, 35, where it says, by this they, meaning the lost world, will know that you are mine. By your love for one another, they will know that you are mine. And then in 1 John 2, it says, by this we, meaning us, we know that we are his, our love for one another. So it's our love for each other proclaims to the world and to ourselves that we are his. And this is the way it's evident. John, again, is, is, is pointing us with assurance. Say, look at your life. I want you to know that you know that you are his. Look at your life. Uh, now, earlier I made a, a distinction between the two ways we can read this text. Uh, one with others in mind, one with ourselves in mind. And, and so for a moment, church, I want 
to ask if we can together place ourselves under this letter. Uh, Place yourself as a recipient of this letter. Uh, John tells us here that there are two families. There's children of God, children of the devil. Notice there is no third middle ground family. Since there are two families, children of God, children of the devil, and there's not a middle ground family. I've read several books on this, and one calls this section of scripture, who's your daddy? I think that's fitting, right? Who's your daddy? I love this because we have a family. We are a child of someone. Who is it? Who do we belong to? As you examine your life, what is your response to your sin? Are you content with it? Do you make plans to accommodate it? Do you actively hide it? Or are you fighting it? By the grace of God, do you you try to set up guards in your life to battle against it? Um, Do you confess it? Again, it's not my place to tell you if you're a child of God or not. That's not why John gives us this letter. Um, Salvation is a work of God through Jesus Christ, period. It's not my job. But one of the ways that we can walk in assurance of our own lives, looking at our own lives, is in what God has done in our life is by examining our response to sin. By examining our response. If you are here and your response to your sin has been apathetic at best, If you're here and you've been content living your life next to this rattlesnake, if you're content and you're here and you've got ongoing, just repeated, unconfessed, habitual, uncorrected lifestyle sin, if that is you, confess. Confess. 1 John 1, 9, if if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ came for sinners. You're going to fit in. Christ came to save sinners. He cleanses us and gives us new eyes to see our sin. He gives us new eyes to see our sin. This is why it makes no sense for us to try to clean up our lives before we get to him. It makes no sense because we don't have eyes yet. But Jesus gives us eyes, so therefore we see the rattlesnake and we go, no, it's a natural response because we've been given eyes. Jesus opens our eyes and he can open your eyes. As we come to him, we confess our trust in him, confess our sins. Church, he is faithful. He is just to forgive And our God will adopt you out of your current family into his family. You've been adopted into his family, making you a child of God, and we come to him. Now, if you're here and um, you are a child of God and you are broken over your sin, you are broken over your sin, you're here, you are in the fight, you are in the battle, as I know many of us are, um, Listen, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. His mercies are new every morning. I'm not going to have this on the screen, but I want to read it to you. One of my favorite verses in Lamentations 
It says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. We don't talk like that, but let's just, let's just imagine that says, I remember the struggle. Remember the battle, right? My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope and don't stop the fight. Um, For us here in the fight, I want to finish just with three very simple, I'll call them weapons. These are not rocket science. All right. I want to give you three weapons. One is prayer. Spurgeon says that our understanding of grace is measured according to our response to our own sin. Do we flee from God in the midst of our sin or do we run to him in prayer? In this battle, uh, prayer is not the prep work. It is the work. We start with prayer. We start there. God has invited you and promised to help you. You are not alone. He has promised to help you. For those in the battle, we start with prayer. Pray. Second, the word of God. Um, Why not fight temptation the way Jesus did? When Jesus was on this earth and and on his earthly life, he was tempted. And what did he do? He responded to the temptation with Scripture. He responded again and again with Scripture. In a way, the writer of Scripture quoted Scripture when he was tempted. Spend time in your word, church. This is crucial for the battle. This is crucial for our battle. Third is the people of God. Um, let me put it like this. What do soldiers do when they're attacked? I know what they don't do. They don't scatter. When they're being attacked from all sides, it's probably not wise for you to go and run up here, right? That's probably not the way that you want to approach the battle. No, that's crazy. But too many of us, that's exactly what we do. When soldiers are being attacked, what do they, they come together. Or at least they go on a strategy. They're not just willy-nilly going out there. So they come together. We are a community like that. For those of us in a community group, this gets really real. How many times uh, we love our community group, but when we're in a tough spot, man, I don't want to go that night. Right? They're going to see through me, and I'm going to have to... uh, That is that temptation to withdraw. Many of you, you, you love this church. You love it, and you love being here, but man, when things are hard, I don't want to go. Can I just stay home and kind of get my stuff together, and then that next week, I'm going to be back. They're not going to know. I'm going to be able to smile again next week. This is the temptation to withdraw. In moments of attack, we band together, church. We band together. We pray we cover ourselves in the word of God and we surround ourselves with the people of God. We take hold of these tools because these are tools to be used in our battle. I want us to pray here in a moment and 
as we pray, the call for all of us, no matter who you are in this room, is really the same. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, the call is the same. Whether you're responding to the good news of the gospel for the very first time, or you're responding to your sin for the hundredth time. Our response really is the same, and that is to come to Christ. We come to Christ, we ask him to take our heart of stone and turn it to flesh so that we can see him and not be indifferent to our sin any longer, that he transforms us, forgives us, redeems us, adopts us. We come to Christ. No matter who you are, that is the call, so that we are no longer content in our sin. Some of us, have, we have been content for far too long, accepting something about us that is not true. We've stopped fighting the sin because now it's our identity. In this moment, we come to God and say, please remove the blinders from my eyes and let me see my sin the way you do. What is your response to your sin? And I think we would miss it completely if after spending time in a text like this, we didn't stop and take a moment to just pray, confess, respond, repent. I think we would miss it. Um, my hope is that this morning that we are, every one of us, broken over our sin and that our response to that is to come to Jesus. Repent, confess, because he is faithful and just to forgive. So here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little bit um, different for us this morning. I want us to take a moment to respond just for a minute or so, just for a minute to pray. Right where you are, just to pray. If you're here and you're around a friend, you're around someone close, maybe you're here and you're with your family and you want to pray with them, that's fine. If you're here and you want to just pray right where you are, respond, reflect, I want to invite you to do that. And I just want to take advantage of this time. Church, how do you respond to your sin? Whatever the answer is to that right now, I want us to do it in these next few moments. So take a minute, and right where you are, would you just respond?